Good morning, everyone. Today we're in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. I'll read the three verses we're going to cover while we're on this title slide. And uh, there are verses 18 through 20, reading from the ESV. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's the exhortation of Paul, and we'll be preaching on those three verses. Let's pray. Lord, may we have wisdom and understanding as we learn what you've said, apply it to our own situations, and trust you to give us grace to stay free from the things that ensnare the people of the world. We need you, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So going to verse 18, these three verses will finish off First um, Corinthians 6 for us. While I'm here, while I'm turning to that, you can turn to Genesis 39. I promised a few weeks ago I would mention Joseph in connection with this word flee. So get your... Bible's open to Genesis 39, and then I'll break down this text a little bit and open up what is said, and we'll have in our application some other examples where we're taught to flee. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. That word, by the way, is porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'll say up front that this verse is considered uh, difficult throughout the centuries. In what sense is this worse? In what sense is this particularly against one's own body? There have been a lot of discussion, a lot of scholarly, scholarly arguments and reasons about this. I Spend an awful lot of time reading everyone I can get my hands on. I'll do my best to lay this out. However, I think we can get the main intent. Sometimes you have to flee to get out of there. The word flee is imperative in the Greek, fugo, and it's used in Genesis 39 where Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Have you turned there? I'll start reading with verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he's, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now we'll stop there and then we'll go on further. And I want to put this in context. In chapter 38, something else had happened. And it's very sordid and wicked, but it concerned Judah and his wife and wives and ultimately his daughter-in-law, who was dressed up as a temple prostitute. Judah didn't know that's who it was. And it's really kind of a, a big mess that Judah got into. One scholar, uh, Dr. Rosner, points out that it's very likely that this is a background for what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I found this very helpful. The issue in chapter 6, and I preached on this a while back, was that the Corinthians didn't see a big problem with going to the prostitutes, which were very common in Corinth. Temple prostitutes, religious prostitutes, people that had association with Aphrodite and the various pagan things going on in Corinth. Very distasteful, but it was the reality. Their reasoning was, whatever happens in the body is of no particular significance. The spiritual part of the human being is the only thing that matters. I dealt with that. That is what Paul is rejecting. The body matters. The whole person who comes to the Lord is the Lord's. We can't separate out aspects of the person so that we can be like the pagans. We need to be ones who learn from what the Bible says. So in that context, he says flee as an imperative. Flee from pornea. Flee. And I'll read uh, some summaries of where we come to with this, but I want us to think about Joseph. So he had Judah, chapter 38, really bad. And he ended up with what he thought was a temple prostitute, turns out to be his daughter-in-law. Very ugly situation. But here, Joseph is portrayed in the Old Testament as righteous. He'd been sold out by his brothers. He'd been lied about, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. He had been subject to many injustices. But the Midianites, to whom he eventually was sold, took him to Egypt. He ends up with Potiphar, and there he was faithful and got many um, promotions, and he ends up in charge of the household, Potiphar. And here, the wife of Potiphar wants Joseph, because it says in the text he was young and handsome, and that's who she wanted. Notice in verses 8 and 9, how he dealt with this. And I want to address all of us about this matter of how we deal with temptation. It says here, he refused, and here's what he says. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. So he talked uh, to her about, I have solemn responsibility. This is objective. This is rational. This is reasonable. I have solemn important responsibilities. Your husband trusted me. 
And he's thinking about this rationally, not emotionally or not with feelings or impressions, but rationally. Think back to Eve being tempted. You leave aside the rational, you shall surely die. And you go by, well, it looks like it'd be good for food. The first thing to know is you're going to flee. You got to think rationally. He went on and said, he is not greater in his house. He's not kept back anything from me. How can I do this great wickedness? He thought about the objective reality of this. Here's a point we can make right here. The world around us, dear ones, is telling us that the feelings and impressions in the person determine everything. And that objective reality can be ignored. And we see a horrible degradation of society when we lay aside the objective, the rational, and that which God has said and go by inner feelings and impressions. Now, Judah had sinned horribly with this woman who ended up being his daughter-in-law, and so there's a strong contrast here with Joseph. Now, let me read some more, verses 10 through 15. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Verse 11. Now, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left the garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Now, this fled, using in a Greek translation, the Septuagint, same word used here, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He fled. And uh, went out, fled outside. And she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make a sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. So she reverses the whole situation from what's true. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So you know the story. He ended up being punished, though innocent. He fled. The garments come into play, and they remember his brothers had lied about him or brought the garments, and a wild beast killed him to the father. Here's another incident where he's lied about. He's put into jail. The people there forgot him, but God never forgot Joseph. So here is our takeaway. What did we learn from Joseph? It says in Psalm 85, verse 1, I think, there's a testimony of Joseph. The objective, the rational, the word of God, that is our friend. Being faithful and honest to the word of God and living accordingly doesn't always make life pleasant for us in this sinful world. People are lied about. People are hurt. People are mistreated. But what we learn from Joseph is that God has the final say. God had a purpose for everything he allowed to happen in Joseph's life. And he was being sent, though he didn't know it. No angel came and said 
well, Joseph, you're being sent. He didn't know it until later. He was being sent to Egypt to preserve life. And so our the admonition from the Apostle Paul, flee, certainly applies. Now, what was going on in Corinth, they were taking false liberties. There's so many liberties being laid out there before us in the world we live in. Serving God and doing so by his grace and power, not being torn aside to things that will destroy us, is everywhere. Restraint is hard to find. Those who would flee and cleave to the Lord may be punished even when they have kept themselves for the Lord. But we need to know that what God says is what matters. The truth is what matters. Now, let me talk about this sin against his own body. That's, that's the one that causes a lot of discussion. Again, Dr. Fee has been very helpful to me over the decades of studying the scriptures, and his commentary in 1 Corinthians is ex- excellent. He says this, His concern is not with what affects, it does not affect the body per se, but with the special character of sexual immorality and how that sin is directed especially against the body as for the Lord. Then I have some ellipses as I go to another section of what he says. Even though the body is one's own, it more properly belongs to God since it is a temple of the Spirit and has been purchased through redemption. Thus, the unique nature of sexual sin is not so much that one sins against one's own self, but that one sin against one's body, and then he says, as viewed in terms of its place in redemptive history. The Corinthian believers were born of God and received the Spirit. And thus, the individual is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Who is a believer, by the way? doesn't apply to others. And therefore, the pornea, the temple prostitutes, the goings-on in Corinth, which were right there, nobody would think the worst of them if they just acted like everybody else. In fact, they might even think better of them. Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminding, I think, us of, of Joseph, says, flee. Flee. This is not somewhere you want to go and try to resist. You better get out of there. It's a bad situation. Don't flee Corinth. Flee immorality. Let's go to verse 19. Or do you not know? Now, here is the eighth time Paul used this rhetorical question. Do you not know? In every case, something you ought to know, maybe I need to remind you of it that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. Now, we hear this one cited in popular uh, parlance or wording out of context. Have you heard people say, you know, your body's a temple, but they don't even know God. Uh, there was kind of a interesting character that we knew some when we the group I was with was on 24th and Nicola, but there was a guy 
will go out in the street, and whenever somebody come by with a cigarette, he says, whoever destroys the temple of God, him God will destroy. You're going to hell. So everybody smoking a cigarette was going to hell. But then he's misapplying the verse. Now, it may be very well true that those people don't know the Lord, but maybe they did. Wait, wait, I don't know. I'm not the cigarette uh, judge here. But he was taking it out of context. Every single human on the face of the earth is not a temple of the Holy Spirit. Only those born of God. Does that make sense? So the believer's body belongs to God. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.16, there's a plural. You corporately are the temple, the Holy Spirit, the gathered flock. Here, it's talking about the individual. So the other one was plural. Here, it's the individual. And it applies to Christians. I have a statement I wrote in my notes to share with you. We belong to God, and this fact must be carefully and rationally considered when we are enticed by sin. Paul appeals to redemption truths when he exhorts the Corinthian church. We need to have these truths reinforced so that we are not pulled into the lusts of the godless culture. The Corinthians were in the midst of a wicked culture, which never stopped enticing them. So are we. What Paul told them applies to us as well, and more so every day as we see what's going on. Why suffer when you uh, stand against the pagan culture with its, with its siren song enticing to destruction. Just go with it. What causes all this? The big lie that reality is a state of mind. Everything is a state of mind. And all you need to do is change definitions, change terminology, and you change reality. God says no. What God says is what's true, not what we feel and think. Going by what we feel and think is what plunged the entire human race into sin and destruction. Go back to Genesis 3 and look at the first sin. What God said was clear. The day that you eat of this, you'll die. And temptation is telling us that God lied. But no, God cannot lie. It's the world that's lying. It's, it's the Satan's temptations that are lies. The truth is the truth. Again, Dr. Fee, he says this, God's proper ownership of the body is affirmed in terms of being bought at a price. The emphasis, he says, therefore, is especially on the body as for the Lord. The sense of being God's rightful possession which is evidenced both through the indwelling spirit and the redemptive work of Christ. Let me think about this, and I think he has this just exactly right. Dr. Fee, this, of course, stands in stark contrast to the pneumatics, that means the spiritual ones, view that the body 
is destined for destruction, therefore has no present or eternal significance. That's what they're saying. Only the spiritual realm matters. The body doesn't. Paul doesn't agree with them. Back to the fee. The reality of the indwelling spirit is now turned against them. They thought the presence of the spirit meant negation of the body. Paul argues, says fee, the exact opposite. The presence of the presence of the spirit in their present bodily existence is God's affirmation of the body. That's why in chapter 15, there's a, such a strong argument for the reality of the resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection. And we have the same thing going on even in spiritual realms such as Watchman Nee, which I've written about. The spirit is perfected, the body's the problem. The same Corinthian errors repeated by many people, even in the last hundred years, even up to today. The only thing that matters is the inner person, the spirit, the body doesn't matter. That's not what Paul says. God owns the whole person. The whole person serves God. The whole person loves God. The whole person has hope for the resurrection. And that is the implication of being the Lord's. You are not your own. This would be me also reminding us of being a slave to the Lord. And we'll see that as we go on. Let's go to verse 20 here. 1 Corinthians six twenty. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Think about the trends of the culture. Think about what we see and hear all around us. Think about what comes into the evangelical church. Mystical contemplation. Of mystical um, uh, prayer practices. Trying to silence your mind so you can get in touch with the spirit. Trying to sit, shut down the body so you can hear the word of the Lord in some way or another. Contemplative prayer. Spiritual formation. Quantum spirituality. We did a video on that some a while back. In other words, the idea is if you go into this meditative state, shut down your mind, get in touch with the spirit world, the body kind of just goes away, then you'll find your true self, they say. No, you'll find bondage and, and harm and wickedness. None of that will ever set anybody free from sin. And that is exactly the worst thing you could be telling young people in Bible colleges. We need to look at how people did escape. Joseph used ration, rational thought. No, my master put me in charge of everything. He's treated me well. Better than my brothers did. He didn't say that, but we know that. And now I'm going to do this? I'm going to... His wife is the only thing he hasn't given me. I cannot do this. And even though he paid a price, he fled. And, dear ones, we will be free by rational application of biblical truth, not by contemplative practices. The spiritual world is full of seducing spirits that masquerade 
as God or love or something else. It's not from God. How did Jesus resist temptations? Jesus, the Holy One, who didn't sin, even though Israel did, he cited objective truth from Scripture. So we teach objectively because the body matters, the mind matters, rational thought matters. Therefore, we can't let this wicked world tell us that everything's a state of mind, including whether you're a man or a woman. And how can this be? Well, it doesn't shock me that the world thinks that way, but it's not what the Bible says. We need to use reason. Now, what about being uh, purchased with a price? What a glorious truth. Purchased with a price. Glorify God in your body. We might think, how can I glorify God in my body? I'm old. I'm sick. I'm weak. I'm draining down. Shoveling snow yesterday, heavy snow, 50 pounds of shovel, and trying to get it so in case it refroze, I can get the truck out in the morning. And uh, the neighbor came over, God bless him, to help me cross the street. And I said, you know, this snow was a lot lighter 30 years ago. (laughs) But, you know, we are not in despair because of the frailty of our bodies. We're still a temple of the Holy Spirit if we know the Lord, even if we're old and frail. Even if there are many temptations, because the Lord promised the resurrection from the dead, and he still keeps us. So we uh, can glorify God with our body, and it doesn't have to be a young, young, handsome, strong, forceful, articulate, great body. We just need to be the Lord's in whatever state. If someone didn't come to the Lord until they were 90 years old, they're still glorifying God in their body. Oh, yes. One of the saints that I knew when we were on 24th and Nicollet, uh, Harold Schmitz has lived into his 90s and I told his story before, showed up at the prayer meeting the same week he died, barely able to keep his head up. It kept falling on the table. And we were reading from the Psalms and praying, and his head would fall. Finally, he got his head up, and he says, I've failed God in many ways, but it's all under the blood. And his head is back on the table. The next week, he went to be with the Lord. And then, you know, I was thinking, boy, if Harold believes he failed God in many ways. I can't imagine how many ways I failed. Even the more virtuous men I could, that I knew. But it doesn't matter what we think. It matters that he was serving the Lord. And I was honored to be able to do his memorial service. He was a military veteran. It isn't how we would look at things, the, the athletes, the beauty queens, the powerful ones, the rich ones, the end people we would tend to envy. It's whether we belong to the Lord. And some scholars point this out, it's absolutely true, that in their world, to be a slave, borrow the price, of a powerful, important person was high status. It was a higher status than it would be to be free, but to be in some other realm that was considered lowly. How high of a status would it be 
to be owned by the Lord and to be his bondservant, his doulos, to be uh, one who would rather, like David, to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'll take the Harold Schnitzes of the world. He never, he didn't, he never owned a car. Never owned a car. Lived a simple life. Didn't have air conditioning in the house. I sat under a catalpa tree. Lived that way. Had to lie to get into World War II because he was too old. But he got in. He wants to serve his country. Dear ones, if we're bought with the price, slaves of the Lord, that's an honored status. We were purchased by his own blood. He paid the sin that we could for the sin that we could never pay for. Redeemed us from the curse of the law. Become freed from sin. Romans six eighteen, you become slaves of righteousness. To glorify Doxadzo, we saw that in Luke. In Luke, when people were saved, forgiven, healed, when God touched people, cleansed lepers, they glorified God. What does it mean to glorify God? God's glory is in part and parcel of his eternal nature. We can't add glory because God is glorious, but we can glorify him by Affirming what's true. Blessed be the Lord who has redeemed a people for himself. Blessed be the Lord who has done many mighty deeds. Blessed be God who took wicked sinners, purchased them for himself, paid the price through the blood of Jesus, and made us part of his family. Glorify God. Ascribing to God things that are true. That's how we glorify God. And so to glorify God in your body is imperative in the Greek. Those who truly believe and are set free from slavery to sin and Satan glorify God. This is evidence of true faith. This is my statement, a saving relationship with God. A saving relationship with God. And though the body is weak, Corruptible, the temple of the Holy Spirit, we can and must glorify God in our bodies. Don't believe the lying teachers who say if your body's sick, then you're bringing dishonor to God because of your lack of faith. That is so egregious and so harmful and so abusive to saints who love the Lord and are looking for the resurrection and who are still temples of the Holy Spirit because of God's work to say that somehow they can't glorify God because they're sick or weak. That's shameful. It's utterly shameful, but it happens all the time. uh, We need to keep teaching the truth so people aren't abused by false teachings. Let's look at some applications. Number one, we must flee from worldly lust to escape entrapment. Number two, what we flee and what we pursue reveals who we are serving. Number three, those who take seriously the price of redemption 
are motivated to glorify God. What a powerful statement that God purchased us with his blood. Purchased the people. Let's go to 2 Peter 2, 18 through 19. This we see. um, I'm here to preach the gospel, to preach Christ, to preach redemption and atonement, not politics. However, I will say, if you're an astute observer of what's going on, you'll see a mirror of these same sort of things. Redefining, removing boundaries, lying, telling people that what we know to be true can't possibly be true. Don't listen to the liars. Listen to the word of God. Okay? So I think this is pretty interesting in its application to current debate out here in the culture. 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air. Notice this. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Wow, what a, what a timely message. The world is saying, you should have a right to do whatever you feel, whenever you feel like it, whatever it might be. Don't anybody restrain anything. Just go ahead. It's your right to do it. We'll make sure you get a chance to do whatever is going to destroy yourself. But how many have testified that what they thought was freedom ended up being bondage? That's very, very hard to escape, very hard to reverse. We need to be very careful about what freedoms we demand. We have freedom. We have liberty in whatever God has given liberty. What's binding is what's binding by Scripture. But we don't want to be enslaved. Pagan religion entices Christians with freedom, which is in fact bondage. Now, in 2 Peter 2, the context is about Balaam, and that would be, you know, a lot of material to go into Balaam. But I'll give you a quick overview. Remember, Balaam was hired by Balak to curse Israel. Okay, back in Numbers, I think, 22, 23, 24. Now, if you know anything about God calling Israel, you know for a fact that cursing Israel is a very bad idea. Did you know that? God is blessed. And at this point, they were right with God. So Balaam was taken to different places, figuring physical location mattered. Curse them from here. Curse them from there. Curse them over here. I'll pay you big money. Even the donkey rebuked the mad prophet. But when his mouth opened, what came out? Blessing. 
Again, what came out? Blessing. He is blessed. I can't reverse it. But Balaam still wanted to do this, so he was very clever. We can read about this in the New Testament and elsewhere in the prophets in the Old Testament. He said, here's what you do. I can't curse Israel because God bless them. But here's what you do. Offer them your women. Offer them intermarriage. Offer them things that they're going to be enticed by, and then they'll curse themselves. That's exactly what happened. He enticed them away from covenant faithfulness, and rather than fleeing, they stayed and were overcome, put themselves in bondage. So Balaam wanted to curse Israel, so instead of cursing them directly, which he could not do, he enticed them through false teaching. That is mentioned in Jude, 2 Peter 2, and in the book of Revelation. So that's the point one. Don't believe liberty that is, in fact, bondage. Because true liberty liberates, and to be the Lord's bondservant is greatest honor we could ever have. And Joseph used that honor being the servant of Potiphar to flee from temptation. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, 11. This is Paul address, addressing this to Timothy, was in Ephesus. And this is certainly an important message for all of us, particularly addressed here, as we'll see also in 2 Timothy, to a young man, 1 Timothy 6, 11. But as for you, O man of God, here's our word, flee, same word in the Greek, fuego, flee, imperative, flee these things. And then another imperative, pursue. Flee and pursue. You run from this one thing, you pursue the other. What do you flee? Well, in this case, uh, I'll, I'll cite it to you in verses 9 and 10, but it was the love of money. What do you pursue? Things that are, we call in theology, communicable attributes of God. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, the, the things that we often call fruits of the Spirit. So, verse 9 tells us what to flee. It says here, those who want, and literally, I will, I was studying this to teach it one time some decades ago, and I happened to see a infomercial about the time I was preparing to teach her in this passage, 1 Timothy 6, 9. And the guy comes out and says, to be rich, you have to make it your purpose and your will to be rich. <laughs> yeah, Wolf's is right. And I was studying this. Well, wait a second. Paul said not to do that. But they were saying, you got to do what Paul says to flee from. Some people are rich. The Bible isn't saying you have to be poor to be a good Christian, or if you're rich, you're a bad one, or vice versa, or anything. We're in different states. According to the Lord, it doesn't matter. What it does say is glorify God in your body, which is the Lord. Whatever state you're in, glorify God. These other things are part of providence. But if you want, 
or bulimai, will to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which is epithumia, lust, which plunge men, plunge men into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And all the stories that we hear run across people who tell about what happened. They were part of the Jesus movement in the 70s, all excited to serve God. We're going to get rid of being the old wicked sinners and they had hope in Christ. I've heard story after story of, well, some people just said, ah, this didn't work out. I'm going to go get rich. I'm going to get everything the world has to offer. They go from one destructive state to another, story after story. And we need to be forewarned. The Lord will take care of us. God has different places for us, and he'll get us wherever he needs us on the scene of history. And some people have one set of gifts and talents. Others live a certain way. Others live another way. It's all part of being a Christian. It doesn't matter. We're, we work. We do what God called us to do. But if it's your purpose to find pleasure in this world by pursuing it by the means that may present themselves, the fastest way is often an illegal way. What about this guy who was... What, he had some kind of funny, he had billions of dollars, and it's all big, it's all gone. People lost all their money. Again and again, we hear these things. So, what is better than riches? How about righteousness? Godliness? Faith? Love? Steadfastness? Gentleness? Do you know that this life is short? Absolutely. Eternal glory awaits those who love him. And that there will be no rust. There'll be no hedge fund manager who took all your money. There'll be eternal glory. Let's go to verse 2 Timothy 2.22. 2 Timothy 2.22. Again, here's our word flee. I think you can figure out how I found the application points. I did a search for the Greek word in the imperative. And here it is again. Joseph fled. Timothy's told to flee. 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So now this is corporate. As we are fleeing from that which we know would be designed to destroy us, like Balaam's counsel, here, take these wives from the pagans that God told you not to do. That'll get you cursed. You don't need a higher professional cursor. Um, Flee from the things that will destroy us. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, this doesn't mean holier than thou. How many of you know The only way you'll ever have a pure heart is if it's cleansed by the blood of Jesus and cleansed by the working of sanctifying 
work of the Holy Spirit through his means. The pure heart is it mean, I'm a pure Christian, look at you, you miserable wretch. No, we don't ever want to think that way. Pride comes before the fall. We only have purity because of the work of God. And that's what impressed me with that statement, that dear brother in his 90s, the World War II vet, I failed God in many ways. That's what we know because we know God's standards are high. And if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, we wouldn't have hope. But God does change us. The word lust, epithumia, means strong desires. They may be lots of different things. How many of you know the devil's open-minded? You want to destroy yourself this way? There you go. Want to destroy yourself that way? Hey, that'll work too. Go for it. The end is the same. Destruction. Now, the virtues are not a comprehensive list but it gives an idea of what we pursue. So what are we fleeing from and what are we pursuing? That's something we can ask right in here now. We've all failed. I have. But what about right now? What would be ideal to pursue whatever years we have left on this earth? Righteousness, faith, love, Peace with those who call on the Lord. In other words, serving God, caring for the family of God, showing kindness to people, praying for one another, taking care of each other, using whatever gifts we may have, whether they're seemingly profound or whether they don't seem like much. That's not for us to know, but to serve. As we said before, we don't need a test to find out what gift we have. We just show up and serve. The Lord will use us somewhere and somehow. So with those, shows we need each other as we pursue being used by the Lord and looking for eternal glory. Let's go to the next verse here. That is 1 Corinthians 10.31. This is in, we'll get to this eventually as the Lord tarries and we're still in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So to glorify God is mentioned twice earlier. After chapters 5 and 6, we just finished chapter 6 here today. There's an admonition, glorify God. At the end of chapters 8 through 10, which is warnings about idolatry, there's a call to glorify God. The alternative to immorality and idolatry is to glorify God. We glorify God when we trust him, we believe him, and we ask him to work in our lives, however bad they've been in the past, whatever's happened, however, however many failures there's been. If we're still wanting to pursue serving God and glorifying him, it's not too late. Even today, we can begin to glorify God. Even today, we can turn and flee and pursue the things that are from God. So glorifying God 
is a good thing. Throughout the Gospels, when people glorify God, they're commended, and that's what we also ought to do. I want to make sure we have time to really focus on the Gospel. So go to the last slide. When, Acts twenty twenty eight, Ephesians 1, 7. Acts twenty twenty eight, Ephesians 1, 7. Now, I've been in Acts twenty twenty eight for quite a few Sunday school classes. I think we basically got it done. Next week, I'll be teaching Sunday school. We need to go to the next verse. But it's a, to the Ephesian elders, who are also shepherds, also overseers, it's one group of people. And this is what they need to think about the church, and we do as well. Acts twenty twenty eight. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Remember at the end of John, when, when Jesus spoke to Peter, what did he say in three different ways? Tend my flock, feed my sheep, care for my lambs. This is what really will help us see what is from God and what's abusive in various groups that uh, may present themselves as the church or the Christian leaders. Do they care and do we care about each person, every single one whom the Lord redeemed? Are the sheep... The church, so important to God that even if it doesn't appear that one of them in particular has anything to offer us in our pursuit of honor in the world of Christianity, of climbing the ladder of fame in Christendom, or being considered important amongst our peers, if they have absolutely nothing to offer us, Are we still so concerned about that one of the Lord's precious flock as the Lord himself showed? He would leave the 99 to find the one. Do we care about the Lord's flock? And the thing that destroys young people being trained for the ministry is the lure of status in the eyes of the religious peers. What do the important people think about me? Forget that one. What about the person sitting under the catalpa tree who can't afford air and never owned a car? Are they worth spending time thinking about and learning from? You know who really has a lot to offer, by the way? People that get ignored by everybody else. It's amazing the stories and the, the, the life that different people have lived and what they can share. Those of us that have a big, loud voice like me, everybody's heard my stories. But what about hearing the stories of the people that may not look like much to everyone else? So purchased with his blood. Why is every single person in the body of Christ exceedingly important to God? Because the price paid was the blood of Jesus, the sinless one, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Creator, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, who died for sins once for all, who shed his blood to avert God's wrath against sin, who did many miracles to prove who he is, God the Son, the very one who appeared to many witnesses and bodily ascended to heaven and is coming again. His blood purchased the church. The church are those who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not because they're in a church building, not because they take the name church, because of the powerful work of God to fill us with his spirit, make us part of his family. And to treat that as important. Then it says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We're bought out of slavery to sin and made servants of the Lord. Forgiveness of sins, trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Don't believe all of the religious claims out there that would make you a pawn in the process of somebody else's glorious grand way to be a religious leader. Believe the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ cares for his own. And to be his own, you turn to him and trust him alone. He is calling you to repent and to believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, kindness, and your mercy. Thank you that you've allowed us, ordinary folks, who had nothing going for us, to know and see things that angels desire to look into. And, Lord, even today, may some people hear this and turn to you and believe in you. We ask you for wisdom and grace that we might pursue godliness and flee from lust and serve you by your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.